0: If you have a Bible, open to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. We're in the second week in our series in the book of Exodus. Now, I want to really encourage you. If you missed last week for whatever reason, go to our website, which is redemptionaz.com. Uh, and go to the Gilbert uh, congregation and you want to listen to Ty's message from last week. So Tyler did a message where he opened up the book of Exodus. It's an excellent message um, but he also did something that was brilliant that he took a video from the Bible Project that really helps to set the stage for, there's a fan back there someone works for Bible Project, this um, here that, that really helps to set the stage for Exodus and if you're not familiar with the Bible or, or not familiar with the Old Testament especially, um, that would just be a great resource for you to uh, look at. But yeah, make sure, if you, like, again, if you miss that for whatever reason, you want to go back and you want to um, you listen to, to Tyler's message. I don't, I don't usually give uh, like titles to sermons or anything, and I don't even know if this is a title, but there is just something that really struck me as I was kind of immersing myself in Exodus chapter 2, and it's, and it's this phrase. It's that the, just looking at the brilliance of God's promises and the brilliant ways that He fulfills them. Like, like the brilliance, the absolute brilliance of God's promises and the brilliant ways that he fulfills them. And that's what we're going to see in Exodus chapter 2 this morning. Let's pray and just ask God uh, to help us. Father in heaven, I love you. And God, I, uh, like Connor said, it is just a real joy for us to be able to get together and do this. And God, we... It might become common, and we might even take it for granted, but God, this is not an experience that our brothers and sisters all over the world have, so today we are really thankful. God, I thank you for your word that we have free access to. God, I thank you for your desire to speak to us, and God, we desperately need to hear from you, and I, um, and I know, I certainly know that does not depend on me, so Holy Spirit, would you come? God, make us uh, supernaturally aware of your power and your presence. God, like we sang just a moment ago, I pray that in the next half hour or so, God, that you would just light up the dark. God, that, that prisons would, would just rattle open. God, that you'd bring freedom. That you'd, that you'd speak to us. So God, help us hear from you. Jesus, I love you. It's in your name we pray, amen. In the critically acclaimed film, Liar, Liar, starring Jim Carrey, uh, it's a story of uh, Jim Carrey who's a lawyer and uh, he's constantly and consistently making promises to his son and not keeping them. And as the film opens, uh, it's the son's birthday and Jim Carrey's character has made a promise that he's gonna go and he's gonna come home and he's gonna play catch with them. They're gonna play baseball together. And of course, Jim Carrey, the dad, he misses that, and the son is getting ready to blow out his birthday candles, and he's going to make a wish, and he wishes that his dad could never tell a lie again, which is problematic because he's a lawyer. Um, no. <laughs> that felt like way more of a shot than I meant it to be. <laughs> Thank you, God, for lawyers. Um, but one of the things that, that that film shows us and that we just know in life is that promises are only as good as the person making the promise. And, and the weightier the promise, the, the weightier the person making the promise must be, or if we want to use a theological term, the, the more glory the person must have. And Exodus is the story of God's promises to his people. Later on, we're going to see them called, called covenants. And covenant is a, is a word that depicts a deep-rooted promise, a, a binding agreement, an unbreakable connection to the one with whom you've made this deal. And it's important for us to understand or value these promises because Scripture is is full of these promises to his people. God promises to love us. He promises to never leave us. He promises to be our hope and our future, our light in the darkness. He promises to redeem and to reconcile all things. In my kid's Bible, he promises to make everything sad come untrue. He promises to complete in us that which he started. They're big promises. From a big God, and I, I know that some of you in the room, you might feel a little bit like that kid in liar liar, where you feel like yeah, I have a hard time with god 's promises because there's some things that have happened to me in my life, and if God was so good and if God could keep promises, and i don 't understand why those things happen to me we 're going to look this morning at the beginning of this guy's life named Moses. And Moses is a central character in the book of Exodus. And as we start to unpack who Moses is and and his people, the Hebrews, we're going to see a nation that really wrestles with the same thing. Exodus chapter 2, we'll start in verse 1. We put the text up on the screen here for you, so if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, you can uh, make sure that you follow along with us. But Exodus chapter 2, We'll start in verse 1. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, "'Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you?' "'Yes, go,' she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother." Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. There's three things out of Exodus chapter two that we're gonna see as they relate to God's promises. And the first is that God has the power to fulfill his promises. God has the power to fulfill his promises. His his promises. Now, if you remember in chapter one, Pharaoh, in an attempt to wipe out the Hebrews, ordered the male children to be killed by these Egyptian midwives and then made the decree to have these children thrown in the Nile River. Now, as we kind of open up with Moses' story, we're going to see three things that are really just working against Moses that give him a pretty slim chance of survival. First is the king. Now, now the Egyptians would have seen Pharaoh as divine, as, as, as God. And so he wasn't just a king giving an order. This was like the very word of God that was coming to these Egyptian people. So they would have carried out this genocide that he's commanding them. Now, now stop for a, a minute and, and really try to imagine what it's like to live in a culture like this. Uh, just really put on kind of like your imagination hat and think you're, you're a newly married couple. You're in this scenario. You, you, you want to start a family. You want to start to have kids. You're just a, just a normal working couple, you know, like the people in verses 1 and 2. You just kind of mind your own business building pyramids. You want to start a family. And then you find out that your wife is pregnant. And your first question is, I wonder if it's a boy. Normally, that's a a great thing. That's not an issue. It'd be great to have a son. But in this scenario, when newborn sons are slaughtered, it takes on a whole new meaning. Uh, The the parents of Moses living at this time, they would have known what it was like to live under this hardship and under this oppression. Now, now, as we continue to kind of use our sanctified imaginations in this story, I have a I have a really hard time believing that these Hebrew mothers are giving birth to their sons and just saying, well, oh, well, it's a boy and tossing him in the river. There's a phenomenon known as mama bear. And I'm not sure if you know what mama bear is, but mama bear happens when a normally steady woman loses her mind and becomes psychotic because someone has jacked with her kid. It's when a normal, reasonable woman who normally never wants to fight anybody all of a sudden snaps and is willing to throw hands with anyone. Mama Bear is aggressive and violent and the dad cannot get in the way and cannot stop what's happening. So I don't think the Hebrew moms are just like, well, it's the law and they throw their kids into the river. Well, so what that means is that hundreds of times a day, doors are being kicked open And women are screaming as their infant sons are ripped from their hands and flung into a river. It means that dads have to make the crazy choice of what do I do? I try to restrain my wife and hold her back and pin her down, or do I try to fight the person who's coming through the door for my newborn son? This is the world that Moses is born into. Can you imagine the stress? of trying to hide your baby and keep your infant quiet. Have you ever flown with an infant? (laughs) Do you know the stress of like when that baby starts crying and it's like you got a two-hour flight, hour and a half flight, but the baby starts screaming and how stressful that is. You're like, I just would like try to keep this baby quiet. Could you imagine trying to keep an infant quiet for three months? How do you do that? when they need to be changed, when they need to be fed, when they need to be nursed, when they need to be comforted, when they need to be quieted. Can you imagine the stress and the screaming that would be a part of everyday life as babies are ripped from the arms of their mothers? This is Moses' world. There's something different about Moses' parents. The book of Hebrews tells us that they feared God. It says, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. And they did this for two reasons. First, it's because they, they saw that he was a fine child. That language actually harkens back to the book of Genesis in the creation account when God would create and say, this is good. They, they use that same kind of idea that it's good. This boy is good. He's a, he's a special child. And it also tells us in Hebrews eleven twenty three they were not afraid of the king, that they knew that their God was far more powerful than any earthly ruler. In other words, the faithfulness of, of their God fueled their faith. The the trustworthiness of God anchored their confidence in God. They they knew that the God that they served was faithful to his people. They knew that his promises were true, that he was able to keep his promises because God has the power to keep his promises. Now, this wasn't easy to live out because Moses' parents, would, they would not have been the only ones who tried to avoid having their sons killed. They would have known people. They would have had neighbors. They would have had friends who would have been executed by the Egyptians because they tried to hide their children from those who, who were trying to, to kill them. And so Moses' parents, they hatched this crazy plan. They, they said, we're actually going to take our son to the very place where sons are being executed. They take him to the Nile River. So Pharaoh is one issue that's going against Moses. The Nile is a whole other issue. The the Nile River is not the Salt River. The Nile is huge. In fact, it's the second longest river in the world. It's 4,258 miles long. It's full of crocodiles. The the output or the discharge of the Nile is 6.2 million pounds of water per second in motion. That's what Moses is put into. How in the world is he supposed to survive that? He's three months old. He can't swim. But this is where we see the power of God to keep his promises. We see his sovereign rule over every aspect of creation because the Nile doesn't sweep him away. It actually pushes him into the reeds where it just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter is bathing because God has a plan. The plan that sin and death and the brokenness of humanity that entered the world when sin entered the world that would ultimately be redeemed and it would come through these people. So scripture tells us that they built this special basket. They put him in the river. And that Hebrew word for basket there, it's a word that's connected to ark. It's the same idea as when Noah puts his family in the ark and his family is sheltered and saved from the flood. In that very same way, Moses is saved and sheltered from the Nile River. In verse 4, Moses' sister, she's kind of waiting out. She wants to see what's going to happen to him. So she's not entirely sure how God is going to do this. She hopes God will save him, but she doesn't know exactly how this is going to go down. And, and I just think about that story, and, I, and, and as I put myself there in that place, I, I have to admit, and maybe you would be honest the same way, it's very difficult, very difficult, to put the thing that you love the most in that basket. I, I think sometimes our faith, our confidence is God, is dependent on the outcome. In other words, my faith is strong if it all shakes out the way that I want it to. If you're single in here, you say, my faith is strong as long as God brings the person that I want and that they meet the criteria that I have and that it doesn't take too long for it to happen. My faith is strong that God will bring me the career or the job that I need as long as it's in the field that I want it to be in and as long as it makes the amount of money that I want it to make. My faith in God is strong as long as the diagnosis from the doctor is ideal and something that I want to hear. But do you trust God enough with your life to give it to Him? You see, faith is letting go of the thing that is most difficult to let go of. And not just your hopes and your dreams, but your failures and your hurts and your brokenness too. Do you believe that God is big enough to handle all of that? Do you believe that his promise to love you is true in spite of all that? What happens in the story is is really unbelievable. That, that, that Moses' sister happens to intersect with Pharaoh's daughter, and says, hey, would you like somebody to raise that child, to nurse that child? Because I know just the person. What that shows us, the second thing that we learn about the promises of God is that our circumstances don't stop God from fulfilling his plans and purposes or from keeping his promises. God has the power to keep his promises, and our circumstances do not stop God from keeping his promises. I mean, of all the people that could find this baby boy, Pharaoh's daughter. And, and, and can you imagine Miriam, Moses' sister, during all this? And then Moses' own mother gets paid by the Pharaoh, who, by the way, wants to kill Hebrew boys, to raise this Hebrew boy. I, I was really struck when reading through this how God uses women in very significant ways in this passage. They're sisters and daughters and mothers, and God's going to use these women essentially to turn over in an Egyptian empire. And Pharaoh's daughter names the baby boy Moses, which is like the Egyptian word for son, it's close to that word, and it sounds like the Hebrew word for drawn out, because Moses had been drawn out of this potential danger, and he's placed in the safety and the blessing of Pharaoh's palace. And in that same way, Moses one day would draw the children of Israel the slavery of Egypt and lead them to the land of promise. It's no accident. It's no accident that or coincident that Pharaoh's daughter went down to the river that day, because there are no accidents or chance happenings in a world that's presided over by the living God. And there are times when everything appears to be going wrong, but God is working on his promise. In our lives there are times of pain, there are times when the walls are closing in, and it seems like there's no way out. But in those moments, God is working in his providence. He's fulfilling his promises. He's providing for our deliverance and our salvation. God is in control of all events. The prophet Jeremiah says this, he says, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. As we continue in the story, look at verse 11 in Exodus chapter 2. One day, so about 40 years has passed by when we get to verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, and he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Spoiler alert, God does later on, he does exactly that, actually. Um... Are you thinking of killing me as you killed an Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and he went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. The last thing we see about God's promises is this. God's promises start with who he is and who we are in him, not with what we've done. God's promises start with who He is and who we are in Him, not with what we've done. You see, even though he had lived a life of privilege in Pharaoh's palace, he had witnessed the oppression of his people for years. Remember, he was raised by his own mother, so she would have told him about uh, about God. She would have told him that he was a son of Abraham. She would have told him about a, a life of purpose and promise. She would have told him about how he was delivered and that God had something special set apart for his life. He would have grown up knowing that. This is why it's so important for us to know our story. Not just our past and what we've been through, but the story that God is writing. It's important to know through the scriptures the story of our salvation. Because Moses, like you and I, is going to go through some very difficult times. But knowing that God is the one who is writing our story, that he has a purpose for our life that is bigger than those tough times, knowing his story of salvation is essential. So, so Moses, here in an attempt to rescue one of his people, he kills the Egyptian the next day, he, he sees two Hebrews fighting, he tries to reconcile the dispute. And and it's met with anger from the Hebrew men. And so Moses knows two things right away. He says, one, the way that I went about that was all wrong. I should have never done that. Two, he also realizes these people do not yet see me as their leader. They are not ready to be led by me. So he knows that he has to flee because Pharaoh is furious with him. Now, it's important to know Moses did not flee Egypt because he was afraid of Pharaoh. Hebrews 11.27 makes that clear. It says, by faith he left Egypt, not Fearing the king's anger. But scripture does give us some insight as to why he left because the writer of Hebrew tells us in Hebrews 11 30, 24 that he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, it doesn't mean that he's ungrateful for the kindness that was shown to him, but it means that he was unwilling, but that meant that he was willing to release the privilege and the power for the good of others to the glory of God. It means that Moses had his eyes firmly fixed on something infinitely more valuable than the glories of Egypt. And because of that, he refused to remain in a land where where had he stayed, there was a probability that he could have become pharaoh but he deliberately turned his back on all that power and privilege and the position that that would have given him. Instead, the scripture says he chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He gave up wealth. He gave up a comfortable home. He gave up privilege. He gave up power. He gave up worldly success and acclaim. He forfeited all the passing delights and thrills afforded by an Egyptian lifestyle. And in exchange for that, he got the companionship of the Israelites, most of whom complained the whole time that he knew them. He got the stigma of being associated with these people who were hated and mistreated by everyone else. And he got the blessings of suffering for the sake of Christ. Hebrews eleven twenty six says it this way, he, who's Moses, regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ a greater value than the treasures of Egypt. So what are we willing to give up for the sake of Christ? What Egypt are we willing to leave behind so that we might have a deeper experience, understanding, and enjoyment of God for the good of others? It could be this morning that you're in one of three places. Um, It could be that you're in that kind of like Egypt scenario. Maybe there's a relationship that you're pursuing or a job or a career that you worship. It it could be anything. But you know that it's something that you love so much that you can't let go of it. It could be um, that you could be in the position that Moses is kind of in right now, that you know that you have to leave it or let it go, but you are underneath the worry and the anxiety and all the junk that goes with that and you are in desperate need of faith to leave, a faith that only God can provide. Or it could be that you've left your particular Egypt and now you're in the wilderness and you don't know what's going to happen next. And you left the, the thing or the person and you're like, I, God, did I do the right thing? And that is a difficult place. Sometimes it's a lonely place, but It's in those moments that we experience God in such powerful ways because in those wilderness moments, he takes away the distraction of our idols. Let's finish the story, verse 16. A priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flocks. And some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flocks. And when the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. But where is he, Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Sounds like an Italian guy. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. And Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. Verse 23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Verse 24, super important. Listen to this. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. As we close up, Moses, he's fled Egypt. He enters the wilderness. Again, he gets into a fight. This is great. These daughters come to water sheep. Shepherds bow up on them, chase them away. I I love how Moses records this. So, like, here's the thing. Most scholars believe that Moses is the one who wrote Exodus. And I don't know, like, why he describes this kind of incident the way that he does Um, And I don't know kind of everything that happened there, but I know there's one Moses and shepherds is plural. So if I'm writing it, I think I would have gone on for a little bit about that tussle. But Moses, pretty humble guy, he just lays it out in one line. Girls go home, they talk to their dad, and their dad has the perfect response. Where is he? Let's give him something to eat, which is a great lesson. So if anybody ever does anything nice for you, like chase away a bunch of shepherds, the least you can do is invite him over for dinner. And Moses, he lives 40 years in Egypt. Um... And he'd spend another 40 in the land of the Midianites. And during that time, he marries. God gives him a son named Gershom, which, which means sojourner. And I can't help but think of Moses when he's holding his son, how he would have thought about his people and the oppression and the slavery that they were still under, and how he would have thought about his own story and how God had saved him as, a, as an infant, as a baby, as a child. In verse 23, we hear the Israelites continue to struggle; they groan in their slavery. The message, which is a paraphrase of, uh, says it this way: I love it. It says, "God listened to their groaning. God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw what was going on with Israel, and God understood. God listens. God remembers His promise. God sees, and God understands." And for some of you, maybe that's just what you needed to hear this morning. Is that God hears you. He remembers his promises. He sees you. And he understands. There is no cry to God when it's sincere that goes unheard. When God hears our cry, he remembers us. He recalls his promise, his covenant with us. There's a guy named Tim Chester who writes a commentary on Exodus I'm reading. And he he says this rightly so. He points out that Exodus is, is our story. Because in the same way that Moses, without God's intervention, had no shot against Pharaoh. Moses, as a baby, has no shot against Pharaoh. He has no shot in the Nile. Without God's intervention, he has no hope. And you and I, without God's intervention, we face an impossible situation against sin and death. Sin is missing the mark. It's falling short of God's glory. It's rebellion. It's treason. It's trespass. There, there's a theologian named Cornelius Pentega. I messed that name up. I asked Tyler four times how to say his last name. He describes sin like this Sin is any act, any thought, desire, emotion, word, or deed, or its particular absence. So, not a lot of wiggle room here. That displeases God and deserves blame. Sin is culpable and personal affront to a personal God. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. We have all personally rebelled. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, parents, real quick question. Have any of you ever had to teach your kids how to be shady? Or do they just kind of know it? They just kind of figured it out on their own. We had a little episode of Artino CSI at our house this week around the dinner table. Everybody sits down, my wife comes to the table, and she says, Someone has put broccoli in the bathroom trash can. (laughs) Of course, no one in our family has done this. Someone broke into our home and put it there, but we got to go through this anyway. So my son, who's the youngest and the most dull of my kids, he says immediately, it wasn't me. And I was like... (laughs) Of course it was you, dude. You're the only one who doesn't like broccoli here. Like your sister is across the table, sitting across the table from you, literally eating broccoli right now. (laughs) And I know your other sister likes it and I don't think me or your mom would have done that. In fact, my wife was most upset because she had just bought this trash can from Target and she was really (laughs) upset that someone put broccoli in it anyway. So we have this kind of like CSI moment. My wife's kind of like the David Caruso character. So she's like, there's broccoli in the trash can. I'm like iced tea from Law & Order. Who put the broccoli in the trash can? So we go round and round and it ends in a rough evening for my son. But now, how did my son learn to be like sneaky and shady and lie like that? Like, did I teach him, like, hey, dude, if you don't want to eat your broccoli, here's what you do. (laughs) No. And even if I did, I'd be embarrassed because he sucks at it. And he's like, that's so obvious. There's not even like a bag in the can. (laughs) He, He was born into iniquity. He bends away from what is right. That's what that means. And that's true in all of us. We've all sinned. And sin is personal and it's systemic. Plantinga, taking another round at it. He says this. He says it's super personal, meaning that sin transcends the personal. Listen to this. Sin is more than the sum of what sinners do. Sin acquires the powerful and elusive form of a spirit, the spirit of an age or of a company or of a nation or of a political movement. Sin burrows into the bowels of institutions and traditions, making home there and taking them over. So our sin is a personal offense against God and it pollutes whole systems and structures and institutions that are hopelessly broken and ultimately condemned by God. But, Romans 5.8. Shannon read it for us this morning. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the same way that Moses is picked up out of the Nile River, Christ is drawing us out of sin and death. While Moses could do nothing, he was drawn out. And as he's drawn out of the Nile, we're reminded that we've been drawn out of sin and death forever. We've gone from enemy to family. Matt Chandler is a pastor. He says this. He says, Like Pharaoh's daughter looked upon Moses and had compassion, God in the heavens has looked on you and had compassion and extended mercy that you might, as David cried out, have the joy of your salvation renewed in your heart as you are reminded of God's goodness and grace toward you in Christ. Now, we're we're done, and I've got... Just real quick, I want to talk to one group specifically in this room. There are people in this room that you would say of yourself, you'd admit this of yourself, you're not a Christian. But the cool thing is, you, you keep coming here. And I love that. And as long as I'm at this church, I hope that you always feel like you can come here. I want you here. You might not always totally get what's happening in this room, you might not totally agree with everything that somebody up here has to say, you might not get all the songs, you might not, but there's something in your heart that makes you kinda lean towards what's going on here so that when your friend says, hey, you wanna go to church, you're like, yeah, I guess I'll go, yeah, right? So if that's you in the room, and just listen real quick, I just we're, we're done, just real quick. If something in your heart has you leaning towards what you're hearing here when you come here, I I love that. There's there's a theological term for that. It's called the effectual calling of God. And, And it just simply means that God is wooing you. It means that God is drawing you to himself. He's telling you that he hears you. He remembers. He sees you. He understands. And so I want to unapologetically plead with you. Salvation is available to you. You don't have to have it all figured out. I've been a follower of Jesus for 18 years. There's a lot of stuff I don't get yet. You just have to know I am stuck in sin and death. And I can't do anything on my own to get out. I need Jesus to save me. Now, you're going to need some help kind of working out what that means for your life. We all do. We all do. You don't need any magic words or phrases or special incantations. You don't need any of that. You just need to say to God, I want to give you my life. I get a sense that I'm a sinner and I've rebelled against you. Forgive me. Help me. Jesus, save me. And if you feel like your heart is tender towards that today, don't ignore it. I beg you. Don't just try to stuff it down. Don't just try to blow it off. Consider it. Right now, pray, pray that. God understands. The psalmist in Scripture, he writes all kinds of things that sound like, my soul is in anguish, how long, how Lord, how long? And the voice of God answers with words like this, Psalm 34, 4, 6. These are my favorite verses in the Bible, my life verses. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. And those who look to him are radiant, and their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him, and he saved him out of all his troubles. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. God, thank you for um, the way that you make incredible promises to your people, and even more for the way that you keep your incredible promises God, I pray today for the person who is wrestling with you, and God, I pray that you would save them. God, I thank you for the way that you hear us, that you remember, that you see us, and that you understand. thank you for the way that you are near to us. And God, when we call out, you save. I love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.